Hi, Clancy. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I am honored. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Um, so I grew up in a few places. Uh, my dad is a minister in the Episcopal Church, and we kind of moved around a, kind of a lot, a little. Um, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. And um, so like some of my first food memories are pizza, like Pepe's Pizza. Mm -hmm. And there's a great bakery called Libby's that had amazing cannoli. And um, to this day, those like cannoli are my favorite dessert. I love cannoli. (laughs) Right? Like so important. So important. Um, Yeah. So we moved from New Haven to Atlanta when I was four. So like my food memories of New Haven are literally Pepe's Pizza cannoli and Mississippi mud pie. Um, my parents used to like to go to chart house restaurant. And I think that was like a recurring dessert there. So those are my like four-year-old memories. (laughs) Um, and my mom is a, like an amazing cook. I just don't from those years remember what she cooked. Um, we moved from New Haven to Atlanta And, uh, I feel like Atlanta is where I spent the bulk of my childhood. And, um, there I remember like, you know, I was older and like grew up there to a certain extent. So I remember my mom's cooking a lot. She was really into the silver palette cookbook. She also had this cookbook by Eileen Ford that had a really good chicken salad in it. Um, My mom used to like to make some stuff by Julia Child. She was like, when my parents got married, she really wanted to become like a gourmet cook and started taking cooking really seriously. Um, But she's also a little bit of a health nut. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember a lot of vegetarian things, vegetarian lasagna. Um, Yeah. And some Southern foods too, because like both of my parents are from the South. But my mom, like growing up, I don't remember her cooking a lot of Southern things, but I remember like enjoying it at like my grandparents' house, having like greens or like fried fish sandwiches or like um, really good barbecue. Um, What else? We used to go after dance class, we would always go to either varsities in Atlanta for my like post-dance class snack or Wendy's where I would get French fries <laughs> and a chocolate shake. Um, or where else would we go? There was this place in Buckhead that made these awesome beignets. And so, yeah, those were all like post, post-dance post class treats I would get um, depending upon our I'm always interested in how people who grew up with even a touch of, you know, that kind of vegetarian cuisine from the the healthy health health focused times, how you relate to vegetarian food now or or how it manifests in your life. Um let's see. So like I feel like I'm heavily influenced by my mom. Mm -hmm. In that, um, 
like I said, she's always been a little bit of a health nut and literally at different times in my life has called me to say, have you eaten like a cup of blueberries today? Are you eating <laughs> enough green vegetables? <laughs> um, and really like she's always had a subscription to Prevention Magazine and has always been into reading about health. And so, and we're both like hypochondriacs. <laughs> and so I've always kind of, been cool with eating like heavily vegetarian stuff. And I also, for better or for worse, do kind of in my head link it to health sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But frankly, I feel like it's easier. Um, I feel really, I don't know. I think because of my mom, I feel very open to eating lots of vegetarian food. Um, and because I'm kind of sometimes lazy, um, in the kitchen, I sometimes don't feel like cooking meat, even though right. I'm not, I don't consider myself a vegetarian. I just kind of prefer eating more vegetarian than not. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't even know if I'm answering the question. No, you are. Yeah. <laughs> but how did, <laughs> how did you decide to go into food and eventually go to Paris to study pastry at Le Cordon Bleu? Um, so when I graduated from college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, um, work-wise. And I decided to kind of make it into a little choose your own adventure or like trial by era adventure. Um, I did, like I studied history, I studied French, I studied Arabic, I studied political science, I studied film. And, um, so I wanted to figure out how to apply aspects of what I learned in some kind of job. Um, specifically like I majored in history. So I was thinking, I really was and kind of am still into languages. So I was thinking, oh, okay, maybe international development could, you know, pull on things I had learned. So I ended up working for a non-governmental organization, American Friends Service Committee in Philadelphia. Um, and I started taking classes on like anything that interested me on the side. So I was taking film editing classes. I was taking dancing classes and acting classes. And I thought maybe I would become a documentary filmmaker. Um, I hated editing film. I also took cooking classes and the cooking classes were the most fun because I felt like I saw like the fruits of my labor immediately. So it was like that immediate gratification thing. And I think I realized how much I enjoyed working with my hands. So um, I ended up getting an apprenticeship at this restaurant in Philadelphia called Fork um, I was actually trying to get like a proper job there on the weekends, but the chef was like, you have no restaurant experience at all. Um, but she was kind enough to let me like come in and do prep work on the weekends. And I really loved it. It was the first time I ever showed up on time for work. Um, I felt fully engaged and completely stimulated and very present. And I loved that I was making things and I loved that I was working with people and I got to see, even though I wasn't the person cooking, I was just 
chopping up like five bins of onions, I got, (laughs) I kind of got a kick out of the fact that what I was preparing would be put to use to make a beautiful meal. And um, at the time, I also really wanted to go, I, I thought I wanted to go to grad school. I was all over the place. I was looking at like, I was looking at business school. I wanted to become, a, I was, I was really very materialistic. I wanted to become a millionaire by the age of 25. So I was like, I'm going to get an MBA and that's how I'm going to make millions of dollars, which makes no sense. Um, but I wasn't very logical. Um, but I did definitely want to go to some kind of school. So I asked the chef I was um, reporting to like about her opinion on going to culinary school. And she was like, you don't actually have to go to culinary school if you want to be a chef, but I would consider it if you want to go into pastry. And so that kind of was a light bulb moment because I do have a major sweet tooth and, um, I, you know, I had some thoughts maybe of like Julia Child. And I also like I had studied in Paris before when I was in college um, for a semester. And frankly, I had a terrible time (laughs) and I wanted to go back and have a do over. And so basically I was like, okay, I can go to culinary school for pastries. So I did research on pastry programs in this country and they were all super expensive. Mm-hmm. And um, I already had student loans. So I was like, I'm not trying to go into debt for a culinary school. So, and I like learned, like I did research on the Cordon Bleu and took like a quick little, I think I took like, I was living with my parents at the time. So I was able to save money. Um, I took like a little research weekend trip to Paris and I was just like, okay, I could do this. And I got a second job, saved up money. Also, This is meanwhile still working at the NGO. Um, and yeah, I was like, okay, Le Cordon Bleu. Weirdly, the more budget-friendly school. And also because I am a Francophile, it kind of like checked that box. And it gave me the opportunity to have a Paris do-over. And it all kind of seemed perfect. I was like, ooh, I'm going to learn how to make croissant in Paris. And that's going to be amazing. So it ended up truly being, I was there for a total of four years, but the pastry program was nine months. And the first nine months were a genuine fairy tale. It was a good choice for me. That's awesome. Were you fluent in French before you went? I was, which was, I think, the thing that made it even more kind of magical because I was really Mm -hmm. able to connect in a way that made it feel like an actual home for me. Right, right. And how did studying pastry in particular shape your approach to savory cooking? Um, I think, I don't know. I'm not sure it really has, but maybe right. I like I have a visual thing, like, because at least at Le Cordon Bleu and in the pastry kitchens I worked in, you always want to like make it look soigné. You always want to make it look nice. And there's like a visual, especially in the French approach to desserts, there's such a visual emphasis. So I kind of, 
I care about how food looks even before Instagram. I cared about how food looked. And I think, I don't know, like with pastry, it's kind of laborious. It's really precise. It's a little tedious. So that is something that I don't really run away from with cooking. But that Mm -hmm. being said, I actually think because sometimes like more difficult pastry is a little tedious, it makes me want to cook like savory food in the simplest way possible. Right, right. And the political potential of baking has been a big theme this year. Do you view pastry as like a tool for political and societal change? Totally. I wrote about um, Georgia Gilmore for um, the New York Times Overlook section either last year or the year before last. Time doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) And I really, really loved researching her story and her work. And, you know, the fact that she from her home was baking and cooking and selling the food she made, excuse me, to um, help fund the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted, I think, 382 days or 381 days um, in Montgomery, Alabama. And the fact that she, she was not doing this by herself. She was organizing other women to do the same. And so she's the woman whose name we know best from that moment and from that action of cooking and baking and organizing. But there were, there were many women like her. And I think that is one of the most powerful examples of how food and baking and cooking can be used as um, tools for political organizing. Right. And to change gears from pastry, but your, your cooking, your cookbook cooking solo is about making meals for one. And what was the inspiration for that? Because that, that really is a unique idea in cookbooks, which, you know, where the portions are for four to six people all the time. Yeah. So for cooking solo, that book is definitely heavily influenced, um, from my time, uh, living in Paris and, yeah, because so basically when when I got to Paris, it was my first time ever living on my own, like having my own little studio apartment and my first time cooking all of my meals for myself. And it was really a joy for me because I was basically getting to know my neighborhood. And one of the ways I got to know my neighborhood was by going to like the little farmer's markets, the marché every whatever days they were running. And so I would just buy random things and experiment with them. And I had this teeny tiny refrigerator in my teeny tiny apartment. And so I was never really making, it didn't make sense to have a lot of leftovers. It didn't even make sense to buy a lot of food. So I was constantly making these small meals or, you know, kind of single serving recipes. And um, after that whole experience in Paris, I actually wanted to write a cookbook about my time there and like to make it kind of a food memoir, like with an emphasis on things I ate. And that got roundly rejected (laughs) and um, like literally by 30 different publishers 
And, but my mom was like, you know, you have recipes, you have a repertoire, you should, something's right under your nose that you could mine for another book project. And I took that seriously. And it was also at a time when, um, I don't remember the year, it was either 2012 or 2013, but the census had come out saying that for the first time in U.S. history, there were more single people than married people. And that was another light bulb moment because I thought, oh, I am also single and I also cook a lot. And even when I'm in a relationship, I cook a lot for myself. So, or like a romantic relationship. And so I basically was like, there is an audience. There's a, the census just told me there's an audience for um, cookbooks for one. And I personally, even though I use leftovers, I don't really like having them. So I really thought like, okay, maybe there are other people like me who like to go to dinner parties and restaurants, but also like to cook for themselves and don't want to be bogged down with leftover food and just want to enjoy a meal for one. So that was the inspiration. Well, when did you decide you wanted to write? Was that always something you wanted to do? Um, I've always written. I haven't always tried to be published in, um, so after working in bakeries and restaurants in Paris, I kind of, I actually wanted to get a restaurant job, but the chef I was working for was like, you're great, but you're too slow. (laughs) And, um, I (laughs) was, a little distraught, but I also, I also was like always tired from that job. Like I loved it. The, this was like the last pastry kitchen I worked in and I was kind of like, all right, I'm not necessarily like, I think I have talent and skill, but I don't really have the chops to be working in a kitchen full time. And so at the same time as I was having that realization, Le Cordon Bleu had a job opening in their recipe development department. And so I was like, this is great. I can make actual money and um, also learn, like learn something else in the food world or like under the food umbrella, like learn how to write recipes and stuff. And so that was helpful. And then I started kind of writing, basically writing for free for a blog about Paris food or blog about Paris, but I wrote about food. And then I thought, well, I should try to like be paid, (laughs) like try to actually sell articles. So I ended up taking this class on food writing from Alan Richman, who either still writes for GQ or used to write for GQ about like food Um, and yeah, so I started a blog, Clancy's Potluck and yeah, I just kind of, and I did a series of informational interviews with magazine editors and chefs and journalists, basically asking them about their paths and how to get a foot in the door. And yeah, I just slow, very slowly started building like getting clips and writing stories. And I ended up getting a, like a, I actually got an agent through one of my informational interviews and she immediately put me on a ghostwriting project. 
So that helped. So I think writing, I, I, I think I got into writing about food because I realized I wasn't going to be working in a kitchen, but I still love food and wanted Mm -hmm. and like very much wanted to be a part of the food world, so to speak, and was trying to figure out how can I do that without being a professional chef. Um, And then I also like, I also work as a writer for Columbia. So that's like, I never talk about it, but that is (laughs) like, another hat I wear. I wear a lot of hats and that's another major hat I wear that allows me to live. Right. Right. (laughs) It's always important to, (laughs) because people are always wondering like, how, how does anyone survive as a writer? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You you have to juggle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. That's interesting because I actually, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer and worked in magazines, but then I like kind of accidentally became a baker, a vegan baker. And then Mm. that was how I decided to write about food was because I was like, actually, this is too much and I'm never going to make any real, like I was selling stuff, but it's like the, the margins are so incredibly slim. I was like, I don't think I have it in me to keep doing this. And then I was like, you know what? I can write about food. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's a way to stay in the world without, um, yeah, without losing your marbles. (laughs) Um, but yeah, Totally. At a certain point, I was like, this was in Paris, but I actually continued this in the States. I had like a sweet potato pie, little (laughs) artisanal business. Um, I would sell sweet potato pies to places. I worked as like a translator. Um, Yeah, it's at a certain, I don't know. I feel like you have to juggle, but you also have to figure out how can I streamline and enjoy my life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know, speaking of last year, you announced you were uh, going to launch for the culture, a magazine, and, and it seems people have been so excited for it from day one, but it was also a pretty prescient move as people are looking to independent media more and more, especially in food. So how has your vision for the magazine changed over the year of fundraising and visibility, if it has at all? Um, I think my vision is pretty much still the same. I've been really like, heartened and humbled and amazed by the very kind and generous support of For the Culture. I think um, I definitely couldn't, I, nobody could have made up this year. Like nobody, you, there's right. no way you, <laughs> any of us could have imagined how 2020 would unfold. But I do, I've, I'm glad that it is a project that definitely I think resonates with the moment or maybe reflects the moment a little bit. Again, not that I predicted that. Um, I think one thing that has changed, uh, I feel like I definitely heard Davida talking about like, how is this moment radicalizing you? And I feel like for me, I really paid a lot of attention to and learned, and I am still learning about like movements to support black trans lives. And so I feel like, okay, if, if there has been any change, it's that I want to figure out how to incorporate and highlight um, black trans stories 
um, specifically black trans women uh, in food in the magazine. So that's something that when I first started the project wasn't necessarily at the forefront of my mind. But over the course of the year, I've been like, oh, okay, this is something that I need to center. I need to have thought and reflection on and uh, make sure that these stories are also included. Um, So yeah, that's kind of a change, but it's not, I don't know. I feel like it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and for you, is cooking a political act? Yeah. I mean, I think of cooking as, I think cooking allows control. And I think it allows like personal control. I think it allows, um, it allows for supporting like a different food economy or more directly supporting farmers. Um, I also think of cooking in terms of, in terms of it's being a political act. I think of it in terms of like imperialism. I also think of it in terms of hunger and um, like, how does hunger exist? And like, I don't know, just moments in history and moments in like, like, I don't know, like Ronald Reagan's war against food stamps. And like, I don't know. So I I feel like it's all connected. Um, And food and cooking, cooking specifically is, I think, deeply political. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. I am so um, grateful you had me. And I also, (laughs) yeah, I'm totally honored. It's such a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you.